would like to propose a podcast in which lesbians from all over the world can listen to lesbian affairs, and that can include anything from flannel shirts to cats, cat litter, cat sitters, hot cat sitters, lesbian affairs itself, um, politics, radical lesbians, veganism, non-veganism, anything. Welcome to a lesbian affair. Hello, hello. Welcome back to A Lesbian Affair. My name is Jess and with me today are my friends Erica and Alex, um, a couple that are currently on Zoom with me sitting um, in front of a background that is rather impressive. It's, it's an alphabetized bookshelf. Um, hi, Erica. Hi, Alex. How are you? Can you just tell me a little bit about yourselves? Um, I'm Alex. I work as a physician associate in the NHS. And yep, I'm doing that full time. Oh no, that's not true. I also teach. <laughs> um, I also teach uh, medical education as well. Wow. We'll dip into that in a minute. It's, it's probably high season for the for anything NHS there. Erica, yeah. are these books yours? Um, <laughs> yes, these books are mine. Um, although I married Alex partly because she is an avid reader. Um, so <laughs> I have, my name is Erica. I am a bookseller at Gaze the Word Bookshop. Uh, I am also um, a uh, academic, although that is less of a big part of my world these days. But these books behind me, uh, as Jess has seen on Zoom, are from my master's and my PhD research, which was queer children's and young adult literature. Um, so I have that feather in my cap. Uh, I'm also a writer and a poet um with various little roles um on <laughs> different parts of the interwebs and in print but um but I'm a bookseller so so I'm really intrigued because you're, you're married you're a couple that has been together for a very long time you're probably tired of the question of what's the secret to your relationship um so so I'm wondering can you just kind of tell me how you met oh yeah of course our origin story. How did, we, how did we meet? So we met in college in America. So I was living in the States. Um, I've moved over there with my family. Um, and uh, yeah, we met in college. We were friends from the start of college. And I had a crush on Erica pretty much from the first time I met her. And uh, she remained, uh, yeah, uh, a good friend, but nothing more. And then uh, until after we graduated, <laughs> we eventually uh, got together. Um, so that was in 2007. Yeah. And we, we, were, we remember meeting for the first time officially in like 2004 um, at, at the start of our second year of university or college. And um, my very first girlfriend was within Alex's friend group. Yeah. Um, and uh, we, uh, her and Alex were kind of we joked that they were like lesbian best friends because they talked about Brandy Carlisle and the L word and like all of the like early aughts lesbian culture was like they would ping off each other around that. So I was kind of on the outskirts and so got to know Alex and um, we, we shared a kiss uh, a year before we got together mm -hmm. and it was amazing, <laughs> but it was also a part of this crazy epic evening with Alex's group of friends, which also involved my ex-girlfriend. And so paths <laughs> diverged and then a year later it came together. Um, so we've been together since 2007 um, and we got married in 2010. Yeah. Wow. Um, so 2007, let's just do the math. That's 13 years, roughly. Wow. Yeah. 
I was 22 and you were 23. Yeah. And we just had our 10th anniversary last month. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't feel like we were young when we got married. And then yeah. people kept saying that to us. And we're like, yeah, whatever. And now we're like, wow, you got married young. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now we realize. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. So, so what was the first thing you guys noticed about each other? I mean, that kiss seems very important, but um, you know how you sometimes know somebody from afar and already know things about them before you really meet them? So, so what sort of stuff did you notice? Well, I always joke, but it really is true that uh, I first noticed Erica walking away in a pair of jeans uh, <laughs> <laughs> and admiring her, um, her figure. <laughs> Shall we say? Uh, yeah. And then also the fact that she's always proper laugh and uh, she had this really intense group of friends that I was very intimidated by who were these really intense, like, shaved head <laughs> feminists. We were not the most intense, though, in the feminist studies department. I For me, <laughs> as a world scientist, I found them very intimidating. Um, and I hadn't quite, anyway, I didn't know about, like, queer culture or anything. So, But you seemed like a, a friendly, approachable person. And also you were cute. <laughs> <laughs> and you like to read. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, this butt has a lot to answer for. Um, <laughs> but, um, but in terms of Alex, I mean, she, so she was she was part of, so so we, we went to UC Santa Cruz, which is a university with like a college system, which is unusual for the US. And so I worked for our college and so did all of Alex's best friends and like her friend group. And so I was, she was like in amongst my like coworkers friends. And so I got to know her through there and I think it must have been, it must have been, so I did a year abroad in Ireland, um, my third year of university. And when I came back, Alex and I met again. And I, and I think having experienced, um, a culture that was very similar to British culture, um, like in terms of like cups of tea and pub culture and a landscape more similar to the British Isles. Um, obviously, I won't be the first to say this, Irish and British cultures are very distinct, but um, but there are certain overlaps. And so we kind of reconnected a little bit more and mm-hmm. talked about those things. We literally um, would chat about like cider and tea. Yeah. And like pubs, literally. <laughs> you understand me now, you've lived in Ireland. And, and I- we joke, we're like, oh, I just need to make a cuppa, like it solves everything, it's fine. <laughs> Um, mm. but, uh, but I remember I had a friend from that I grew up with, um, she came to visit, her name was Leslie and she actually ended up for various reasons being at our wedding in the UK. Um, cause she was a meeting in Switzerland for the winter and, um, Leslie came with me to a party at Alex's friend's house and you yeah. and Leslie proceeded to get completely hammered on cocktails on the sofa, uh-huh. but like pissing themselves <laughs> laughing, just like couldn't. And, and like, and it's, not actually, literally, <laughs> but, but, I, but it was like this thing that, you know, Leslie connected with this person. And so, and, and that was someone that I really cared about. And I was like, oh, okay, there's more here than just, you know, the, like the British girl. The British, well, no, I never thought of you as the British girl, oh. but like you were Lauren's friend. Like she was my first girlfriend's friend. Mm. Um, and so, you know, yeah. it's more than just like, oh, there's more to connect here than just like Brandy Carlo. <laughs> and general, like gay stuff yeah Yeah. i mean brandy carlo is a great conversational subject to have and in fact i think most of my friendships have started with that conversation too yours included ironically (laughs) (laughs) i mean she's a great gateway (laughs) i know but then then there comes this sort of thing of having been a fan of hers in the early days like there's this hierarchy of 
uh, true fandom of, of Brandy Carla. Like I think you and I and Alex and I, we we're all kind of uh, fans of the early days, and you know there should be a yeah. you know a little bit of a prize for that. I think. Anyway, I'm joking. Yeah, yeah we need we need original like OG. Badges. Yeah, exactly. Like we were there. <laughs> <laughs> we were the first before the Grammys. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, I'm just intrigued in terms of also when you got to know each other, where were you at in terms of your uh, sexual identity? Was it sort of something that had already settled in for you or how did you identify? And um, I was sort of, I knew, well, I basically was sort of living a bit of a double life. I was in college in America and was very out and very much talking about being queer and identifying as that. And then I go home to England and my family has, turned out to be absolutely fine, but I had it in my head that I had to sort of keep them separate. Um, and so I think I was a bit slower getting it into, you know, feeling that fully that I was queer and that I could do that all the time. Um, and it wasn't just like a thing in college. I don't know. Um, Permission to queer around. <laughs> it's weird. Um, so, and I definitely had a thing in my head about, I had to have a girlfriend to like, be able to come out to sort of say, look, I have a, a girlfriend, which therefore I must be gay, you know. Um, and that was literally what I did. That's like how I came out was I? <laughs> after college, finishing college and coming back and explaining about Erica. Um, but yeah, so meeting, I would say it was part of the process of me, yeah, getting more comfortable with that identity um, in, in my whole life, rather than just in this sort of college bubble, you know, and with our friends in America. Yeah, it was a huge part of that, actually. And also Erica and her friends who they were, you know, they read feminist theory and women's studies and gender theory. The intense friends. I think. <laughs> the intense friends, yeah. <laughs> it opened up a whole other world to me. Like I, you know, I was a studying science and medicine and didn't know about that whole thread of, of studies and like, you know, mm. the gender structure in society and all that stuff anyway so yeah you kind of helped me get my head into that as well yeah yeah yeah, yeah that, that's true I guess yeah <laughs> <laughs> what about you Erica like where were you at when, um, you, when you met yeah so when we when we would have like met as just humans um not gotten together um we uh, I was I was not out yet um so and hadn't really clocked it. So um, the first years of university were really key for me in that I hadn't kind of consciously twigged that I was attracted also to women. Um, mm -hmm. I'd had um, a quite serious relationship with my kind of high school sweetheart and I'd had other boyfriends and stuff and they were really important to me. Um, and so it was probably like a, the year that we met um, within friend groups and stuff was yeah. the year that I came out. So I, um, I had a, there was a girl that was at an adjacent college that I would go to, to party. Um, cause my child, one of my childhood friends was there and they were, it was like the sporty college. And like, they were the ones that like got like the handles of vodka and <laughs> like the pint of orange <laughs> juice and stuff like that. So we go there and it was at one of those parties in the springtime of our freshman year. And uh, she kept joking at these parties, like, we should make out. And I was like, and then eventually I was like, okay, yeah. And she was like, oh, no, I was kidding. And I, by that point, was like, very not kidding. I'm not a, I'm not a person who like. You don't joke about it. Like, 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 if I, I agree to like do something, I'm like in. <laughs> I'm like there. <laughs> um, so 
so yeah, so uh, I then like harbored this like crush on her and then had to go and then was rejected again because I like mm. tried again to be like, oh, and then rejected, went home to my very rural home county and kind of spent the summer um, like looking for DVDs like in the local Blockbuster because I, you know, we're that age where <laughs> we did that. Oh God, Blockbuster. <laughs> I feel so sentimental now. I miss those things. I know. And like oh. looking for films like from like Wolf Productions. Um, but I came back to, I came back to, uh, uni or second year or college or second year and um I was just kind of keeping that quite close to my chest mm-hmm. and not talking about it with people and then um our mutual friend who became my first girlfriend Lauren was like she basically um had the confidence that Alex didn't at the time which was <laughs> that's a cute but I'm going after it <laughs> right <laughs> it works. And, um, and so so yes yeah, so I kind of had my first girlfriend and we were together for a couple months um and even though that relationship didn't work out at the time um it definitely cemented for me that I was by um and very much enjoyed kissing girls um that was great uh and so kind of continued to date both men and women um up until um when Alex and I got together um which was more just a choice of monogamy than like changing sexuality it was just like Mm -hmm. oh yeah so I'm bi and I have these different attractions and queer is a better label for me um and you've kind of felt that way too yeah um yeah and I've never really dated men I've ne- yeah, I didn't date any guys in college, so or have any mm. sort of romantic stuff. Well, yeah, no. I mean, it's, it's intriguing because I think having done this podcast a couple of times, there are people who say, well, I identified as bi and now I identify as lesbian. But there is a conflict that kind of sometimes remains unmentioned, and that's the idea of visibility around bisexuality. Because I think one of the most um, conflicting parts is that when you're in a relationship with a woman people assume you're a lesbian Mm -hmm. and if you're in a relationship with a guy people assume you're straight Mm -hmm. and like you say it's it's a choice of monogamy it's not necessarily erasing your your sexual identity as such um and the word queer is more inclusive of that i guess but Mm -hmm. yeah how how do you relate to that do do you find that people kind of sometimes pigeonhole you or something yeah i think I think that people definitely do and um, people um, socially when they meet Alex and I just assume that we're lesbians and Mm -hmm. working in the bookshop people assume I'm a lesbian and working for Diva Magazine who I work for they do as well and so I find it just when appropriate to correct them for sake of visibility and depending on the angle of the conversation or what we're talking about it feels more appropriate to use bisexual or queer Mm -hmm. um, kind of the politics around queerness and the way that it wants to kind of break down structures and but bisexuality is like a exact replica of my dating history so I can't (laughs) ignore that either and I don't want to because I didn't have relationships with men and was hiding anything I was like yeah I was attracted to those men I had fun with them you know we had emotionally connective like sexually connected relationships and that's part of who I am um yeah But at the same time, like if someone assumes that I'm a lesbian, I just, I take it as a compliment in some, like in sometimes I and we benefit from lesbian culture continually, you know, and I am very proud to be a woman who loves women and, um, and I, we wouldn't necessarily be here without women who paved that way, Mm -hmm. like flying the lesbian flag, you know, and kind of eschewing their previous you know, marriages with men and stuff like that in this in the sixties and seventies and even into the eighties and nineties. But um I'm really acknowledging yeah. of that yeah. history. So 
The thing is, people might say, oh, this this podcast is, is called A Lesbian Affair. And um, in the run up to this, I kind of like explained what we're going to be talking about and stuff. And I think one thing that's very important to me is that I'm, I'm the representation for, for lesbians here. I identify as lesbian, but therefore I can also talk to anybody across the queer spectrum. And it's important that I think as lesbians, we also connect with that because half of the time I feel like we define ourselves through what makes us different from each other rather than actually to also see what we have in common and there's so much of that and equally we have benefited from our pansexual bisexual queer uh, sisters and people who kind of uh, equally um, have a lot to you know say and a lot in common with us so yeah there we go yeah. let's put that rumor to rest yeah, it's an important absolutely. part <laughs> and I feel like you have a slightly different relationship to it than I do yeah I mean I I, um, I maybe haven't got the uh, theoretical uh, foundations that you have from your from your studies but uh i You've got the yeah, experience. Never, come on i yeah i've never felt comfortable with the label lesbian that's never really sat with me um i kind of i yeah i started out saying i was gay and then thinking well actually i was i'm attracted to men and i had a relationship with men so okay that makes me bi and sort of thinking about it in these in these boxes um and actually, uh, I still feel attracted to men. I could still see, you know, relationships with men in the future if, you know, in a different parallel universe if I wasn't with Erica. So I still consider myself bisexual. But I think I'm more comfortable with the label queer now. And that hmm. was one I discovered in college. And I'm very aware of the history of the word and the, the place we're in now where we, we have a selection of words we can choose from uh, for our identities. But um, yeah, queer sits most comfortably with me. Um, but I do joke that I, on, on the scale, I'm sort of less bisexual over time. I don't know, but I'm still a little bit bisexual. But that's only because as, as I get further away from my relationship with men when I was younger, it seems further away, literally just in terms of that sort of reality. But oh it it's gone away completely. <laughs> Um, you know, so yeah, and it's, uh, it's all theoretical because I'm in a monogamous marriage with Erica. So, um, yeah, let's blame Erica. No, let's not, let's not blame Erica. We, we will not accuse you of bisexual complacency. It's all good. It's still fine. You're queer enough. Yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> so yeah, it's interesting. It, oh, uh, it's a conversation we have kind of now and then actually we dip in and out sort of talking about our own labels and parallel. What would be if interesting conversation well and i think it too like <laughs> like the you know we've been together 13 years yeah and and like you know if we meet somebody new and you notice them and you're like oh they're attractive like mm. more times than not they're women and so like our relationship to the world is very female focused in lots of ways yeah. and yet again it always comes back to me like with about my previous relationships and it's like well mm. that was really important to me and i don't want to erase them um, and also, like, yeah. I can, the, the, there will be different pe- different men who walk down the street who I'm also like, hi, you're cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, why would you deny yourself a, a part of your sexuality just for the sake of fitting into community or whatever? It doesn't doesn't really make sense to me because community is supposed to be all about empowerment yeah. and liberation. And connection and, yeah. 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 Um, so, Alex, you, you work for the NHS. I mean, we could go down the whole coronavirus route, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you're tired of that question. So if you want to talk about it, this is the opportunity. But what I'm also interested in is, um, would you say that where you work is a gay-friendly or queer-friendly environment? Like, what have been your experiences within the NHS? Oh, interesting. Um, actually, yeah, my current job, uh, we were joking about the rainbow becoming this symbol of 
hope in the coronavirus. Uh, yeah, we've, we've lent it to them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's been it's been rented to the. Uh, uh, no, no money will change hands. Lent. lent. Sorry, lent. Um, <laughs> so there were these big rainbow balloons that went up in front of the hospital, and we were all doing selfies. And uh, I was joking with my fellow queer co-workers that you know actually we're just using these photos because we're gay but um <laughs> in my current job i have to actually i uh, give props to uclh they've got a good um visibility campaign and yeah there's been lots of connections at work with people i'm out at work i have no hesitation about telling people i'm I have a wife or i'm married to a woman or have a same-sex relationship whatever vocabulary kind of comes up at the time um and yeah there's been a few times where i've actually connected with like consultants at work because because we share that experience um you partly uh, won the christmas quiz oh, yeah. because there was a drag race <laughs> that's right around. yeah the christmas quiz involved around yeah. about rupaul's drag race so yeah it, yeah oh wow yeah. It all comes out now. The secret activities within the NHS. There's a lot going on there. I mean, when I first started working, you know, there was the occasional kind of assumption. There are still assumptions that, you know, my husband or some people will see my wedding ring and ask me about my husband. Or when I used to wear a bit more jewellery at work, they'd say, oh, did your husband buy that for you? And then I'd have to drop the wife bomb and say, no, but my wife did. <laughs> um, that was my hard-earned money. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's come, I'm completely comfortable at work. It's, yeah, it's fantastic. Mm, that's fantastic. I, I remember I used to work for uh, an institution adjacent to the NHS and um, uh, I was working with a lady and everybody knew I was gay. Um, in fact, I think the day I came out, I was working as a receptionist. I was you know, studying, it was one of those entry jobs and mm -hmm. sort of the gossip queen of, of the whole office and department came over and she asked me what I'd done over the weekend, which is usually the classic question that you can use as a plateau for coming out. And I just said, oh, you know, I just hung out with my gay friends. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> so then she vanished. And then five minutes later, I hear from the other office next door, hey guys, do you know the receptionist? She's gay. She's a lesbian. Uh, and I was like, great. So that's, that's sorted then. Yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah. what was just really strange was that one person didn't get the memo and she was deeply Christian um, from a different cultural background. So the stereotype from a gay perspective is, oh, uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to be accepted there, wow. which in itself is, is a tricky thing to navigate sometimes. So mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, a couple of months passed by and I was fully integrated as the office gay, which is a weird role to inhabit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um Eventually, she kind of kept talking to me. She was really fond of me. She said, oh, Vera, how are you doing? You know, I, I hope that one day you'll find a really nice husband because you're such a lovely oh, person. Yeah. And I kind of replied and said, I, I doubt that will ever happen. And then she looked at me with pity as an, oh, my God, your self-confidence is so low. Um, and then she said, oh, don't say that. Of course you will find a husband. <laughs> and everybody started laughing. And that's when I started feeling really bad for her because yeah. everybody knew and she didn't. So I had to come out to her in that moment. And she was OK, but she was kind of thrown a little. And she had very strange questions like, so if you're a lesbian, does that mean you want to be a man? <laughs> Stuff oh, wow. like that. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, it can go both ways with work environments. I think yeah. they're, they're interesting places. But yeah, a drag race, that's that's promising that means it's, it's a good place i was surprised because I, i work at a hospital that's uh could be regarded quite stuffy and 
and uh, yeah, it was a that was a nice surprise. Well, and also it also helps that in a stuffy like environment of like your hospital, that also like men are still going to be like the ones who are like have like the top roles. So some of yeah. those men will be gay. It's kind of that is true. How it shakes down. Although our Christmas party it was great because I basically the consultant just beelined for me and was like, I have to compliment you on your Liberty shirt. It's absolutely stunning. And by the way, <laughs> were you going to go to the LGBT drinks? I never made it. Did you go? How was it? Oh, wow. We're wow. in on the conversation. <laughs> cool. He's also like an incredibly famous, very well-known consultant in his area. And that was quite, it was just this whole other side to him. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> you got to appreciate some good and juicy LGBTQ networking. Sure. I love it when our sexuality facilitates that. Yeah. yeah. That's literally my entire career. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. No, no. It's also talent and, and graft. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Say, There's that. those two, but like... <laughs> networking is I've amazing. become a professional queer, so... Licensed to queer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but speaking of, of, of uh, the professional side of things for you, Erica, I mean, you are a bookseller now, but you have all these other talents and roles, like you're an academic, you've published stuff, you're a writer... You also do cross-stitching, which we should also mention. She's talented there and almost like an activist from what I can see, a cross-stitching activist. Um, if, if we were looking at all these different roles, like let's, let's start with the bookshop. It's an LGBTQ plus um, specializing bookshop that's quite iconic here in London. Um, how do you experience that, that environment? Like, Not only do you bring a certain set of skills and uh, incredible expertise in terms of like children's and youth fiction you also kind of obviously the first point of contact for customers are there any sort of um experiences you've had with customers where you just thought wow this is more than a bookshop yeah. oh absolutely yeah i mean so coming from kind of a varied background and um having different kind of interests across the board in terms of work i had started at the bookshop quite casually and wasn't sure kind of where it was going to fit in, in my kind of career picture. Mm -hmm. um, but bookselling sounded great. And I had this, you know, five, six plus years of research and reading um, that enabled me to talk about books in a way that could actually be useful for customers instead of just being like, oh, I think it's this book over here. Um, and That'd be me. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. And, um, you're great. We talk. We talk books all the time. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so um, I so I started the bookshop, and I was just so excited to talk about books. And um, it was with the within a week and a half, I realized that wasn't just what I was going to be doing if I was going to be working in that space. And um, it was about lunchtime or so, probably twelve thirty, and these three teenagers um, walked in the door and, you know, teenagers don't really have a volume button and they don't have a filter. And I love them for both of those things. And so the three of them walked in and you just knew everything about them within five minutes. And they were so excited and, you know, they had book budgets and they were, you know, maximum three books, like that was it. And they just like, were touching everything. They were like toddlers, like tactile everywhere. <laughs> that was pre-virus day. Definitely yeah. Yeah. yeah, this is back in 2018. Oh, that's more innocent time. Um, but uh, they came into the bookstore and they were just so excited. And it was a really delight to kind of watch them in the space. And so they, uh, I was serving other customers and they, 
you know, chose their books, et cetera. And they came up to the till and I had a conversation with them and they had met online um, through Tumblr, through um, the Pride film. Um, if, you know, fans of the, the film Pride, which um, is based on a true story about a group that met through the bookshop. And, um, and so they, and I, so I kind of asked a little bit about them and found out how they identified in terms of their sexuality and their gender and just a really lovely conversation and it was so wholesome and they all broke their book budgets because they bought the actual <laughs> book about pride, etc. Anyway, rang them up, they walked out the door. And within uh, two minutes, they were back in the shop. Oh, do you have, we don't really know this area because they'd come from outside the M25. You know, they'd come into okay. London. I don't think they were no more than 17. I don't know that their parents knew where they were, that kind of situation where you're just like, well, you do to your teenagers. Like you got on a train very Bromley from Pride, you know? And, um, and so they're like, do you have a recommendation for food? And so I recommended a cafe down the road. And they're like, we're probably not going to talk to each other. You know, we, we're probably going to read our books, but we might be back after lunch. And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. Um, and an hour passed by and, and they came back in and I, and I didn't, um, didn't expect them to come back in. They, they, you know, there's this whole story. They had to buy this book for the one person's boyfriend who was coming, blah, 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 blah. It's, this whole story is happening and unfolding between two of the, the teenagers and the other teenagers standing there quite quietly. And she has on a jean jacket and on her jean jacket, she's purchased three badges for the film pride. And she's pinned them to the lapel of her jean jacket. And she's standing there quite quietly. And she's just gently stroking them like a talisman. And quite apart from the excited conversation that's happening between her friends, she looks at me and she says, I'll have to take these off when I get home, mm. but it's okay. Cause I can wear them to school. Wow. And Oh gosh. To not cry in that situation um, was... Just to clarify, Erica is actually tearing up as she's yeah. telling that story. <laughs> I am actually crying. Um, and, uh, and, and I said, I said, oh, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that mm. and that you have that space and you have each other. Um, and so then, and I think we, that we made the purchase and, and then they left and just walked out the door. And I remember going and finding my colleagues and just being like, this thing that just happened. And, you know, their response was, oh yeah, there was this time and there was that time. And there was this time when I actually like closed the bookshop or there was this time when, you know, I hugged this person. And, and so very quickly realized that it's so much more than just a bookshop. It's a community space and it's yeah. safe a safe space, a place of pilgrimage, and you just never know what the person's story is when they walk in those doors. Yeah. Thanks so much for sharing that story. And I'm aware that I've kind of anonymized the bookshop over this episode. And I think I actually want to say the name at this point. It's it's oh, called yeah. Gaze the Words uh, in Marchmont Street, 66 Marchmont Street in central London. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, I agree. It's the, the holy grail of, of um, anything LGBTQ plus and it's, it's such a welcoming space and so much tradition, history, and also just community type caring that's taking place there. And I think Erica, you, with your expertise, but also your heart stand in, in the tradition of, of um, the ethos of, you know, what, what that bookshop is all about. Mm -hmm. I feel really, really grateful. And, and I think, uh, kind of nothing, nothing standardized about the bookshop, but, um, the way that, that people kind of come into that space and end up yeah. working in that space. And, and for my two colleagues who have been there many, many more years than I have, um, yeah. you know, the way that they steward that bookshop is really, is really special. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the, I think the most 
unique and wonderful mm. bits about the bookshop. Yes, it's yeah, so, so much more than just a bookshop. Now, mm. in a weird way, it's reminded me of um, how precious it is that you can live out your lives um, and, and can be out and proud. Um, however, even the most out and proud couples still encounter discrimination now. And then I'm just wondering, have you as a couple ever um, experienced this discrimination in any form? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, we're generally we're quite comfortable in public, although we read, we've learned to read the neighbourhoods and things from when we're out and about in London for, or, or travelling. Um, so we've come up with like a code word for if we're not holding hands, uh, but we want to, we want the other person to know that <laughs> that we would like to or that we want to be connected. Um, we want to like share um, a kiss, but we can't. I'll just yeah. be like. Yeah, it's strawberry. strawberry. <laughs> that is hilarious because I had one once upon a time, but it's it's not about being connected. It's more about because of safety concerns. So mine was Dunkin' yeah. Donut. What is it with food? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Dunkin' yeah. Donut. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think food is a good is a good thing because you can say it, and people don't really reckon it to be some type some type of coded word. And and I think we've um, we've learned how to physically navigate that without speaking as well. Like if we suddenly drop the other person's hand, um, you know, maybe earlier on in the relationship when it was still new and stuff, it, it felt like such a big thing to drop someone's hand. But I think the longer we're together, the more we know that if we are dropping their hand, it's probably because the other person's uncomfortable and, yeah. and we're just gonna, you know, leave it be. just leave it for a second. And, and we, we, like we had a couple, we had one instance that we actually reported to Gallup in the, in, yeah, when we lived in yeah. South London, we had a coffee thrown at us like very late at night from very far away. Yeah. And we couldn't really understand what was being said. And the only thing we could think of is that we were just a super visibly uh, lesbian couple walking down the street. And so we just treated it as if it was um, motivated. Crime. Yeah. Hate crime motivated. Yeah. yeah. And so we reported that one and, and, but we were fine. Um, we had some coffee splash up the back of our just—that's that's, that's quite dangerous. I mean, this could have been hot stuff, right? This could have really hurt yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Just didn't, you know? It's like you're sort of in your bubble, whatever. We're holding hands. We're coming back from a a night out, and then suddenly it was just like, what the hell just happened? It was horrible. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and we we like. Uh, we are a bit more careful about where we travel abroad, and mm -hmm. I really didn't want that to be something that impinged on us and like factored into our decision making that we were two women. But uh, about four years ago, we were invited to a wedding in Mar Marrakesh in Morocco, and we thought, oh, great excuse to go. Everyone who's gone has said it's amazing. Um, it'll be such an adventure, you know, and this wedding yeah. is going to be just over the top amazing. Which it was. Which it was. Um, but, you know, we kind of researched the laws and it's, you know, imprisonment by, th by three years for being same, a same-sex couple or, uh, you know, kissing someone of the same sex. And, you know, we'd been told they were lenient with um with Westerners or foreigners, um, travelers and stuff like that. And we, we just found the whole experience so uncomfortable. Okay. And I think being really stressful, really stressful being two women traveling in a, in a country where, you know, you really need a, a man along with you to avoid kind of street harassment and, um, you know, kind of tricky situations, both outside of the Riyadh and in the Riyadh and, and just not basically having to 
couldn't pretend that we weren't a couple the whole time. And we we just said that we were friends from college, which is also true, but I was <laughs> not the entire I'm picture. a terrible liar, so it needs to be like a line by like omission rather than yeah. <laughs> like a flat out lie. <laughs> so, so like, you know, by like day three, the, the, we had picked a, a Riyadh that was owned by a, um, that was visibly owned online by a, a couple, mm-hmm. a straight couple. And so we're like, oh, there'll be a woman, you know, there. And, and so, which there was, which there was and, that, and in some ways that was good. Mm-hmm. Um, but in other ways, she was the one that was like, so how do you know each other? And I just had to be like, yeah, nope, definitely friends from college. Friends from college. And, That's- you know, seeing another friend from college getting married. And, yeah. Wow. You know, I think it was uh, us, our experience particularly, yeah. But um, and not not Marrakesh, but yeah. Well, it's the combination of the two. I think it made us rethink about our travel plans and also who we took travel recommendations from, because it wasn't until after that experience that we realized everyone who said it was amazing had been a straight couple. Yeah, um, Uh, who had gone. And then when we talked to women who had traveled solo, if they had if they spoke French or if they were quite comfortable traveling um, in Northern Africa more generally, then they tended to have a better experience. But if they were like us and hadn't ever experienced um, traveling so in that culture. region of the world, um, they just had also had terrible times. So I think it made us smarter travelers um, and, and, and in a good way. Um, mm. anyway, there was another time when we come back from an amazing holiday to Santorini and then it was at, it was at the um, passport control. Yeah, I, can remember. I oh, hate border control generally. Yeah. Yeah. So we had the most beautiful romantic holiday in Santorini. It was your and we 30th were coming, birthday. Yeah. And we had celebrated our fourth anniversary there. And we were flying back. It was like one in the morning, getting back into Gatwick. You know, we're really tired. And the bloody passport control guy, I mean... Eric has got a, a indefinite leave to remain visa, so it's all fine. We're married, you know, no concerns there. But he just he just looked at her and said, "Oh, so so who paid for the holiday?" And wow. like completely ignoring me and just sort of, it was very much about you know you know who wears the trousers, who you know yeah. who who's the man in the relationship, and and we just like I just blanked him and was like, we both did. Even yeah. though it was not true, she had paid for the holiday, but I wasn't going to let him know that. <laughs> you know, and oh, I, like, right. it, it didn't matter because it, it it was so rude and so invasive. It was and, just completely unimportant. Like, yeah, yeah, that's not irrelevant. You know, he oh, because we said you said you were married to me, and that was the basis for your visa. But mm. Yeah, yeah, that's not the follow up question that we were expecting. Yeah. God, that's that's horrendous. I I mean, I personally have have been traveling. Um, I mean, you're from the US, Erica, right? You're from mm-hmm. California. Yeah. And Alex, if you don't mind me mentioning, you're from Cornwall here. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of interesting in terms of your coastal type experience. <laughs> both counts, but US border control is very different to English border control, but there can be different types of discrimination mm-hmm. that kind of happen in either. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I remember the US one being quite terrifying when I came from um, Vancouver, Canada to Seattle once. Um, they're no joke. They're really yeah. scary. No, they're so and intimidating. Very intimidating. Yeah, they're they're meant to be intimidating. They're they're meant to try and catch you out, um, and to yeah. and to catch you in falsehood. And we you know we um, both being white women, both being from yeah. um, 
we have slightly different class backgrounds, but still like educate, you know, educated and, um, and we speak the language of the, the, most of the countries that we kind of travel in and out of, mm. um, on a regular basis going between our two home countries. Um, and I still find it difficult. So I can't imagine, you know, as a person of color, as a queer person of color, as a person of color who doesn't, um, have, uh, who doesn't speak English, who doesn't speak English. Yeah, it's even worse. I had this um, strange experience once where I went to, I think it was the same, Vancouver to Seattle. You drive over the border with a car and and those controls I find more terrifying than the ones in the airport. Mm -hmm. And I had to go to the counter and get like a special stamp in my passport that I'm crossing overland for some reason. And um, the person saw my German passport at the time with like the eagle on it and all that sort of stuff. And we know that the bloody eagle is obviously associated with a time in Germany that is not so nice. And I picked up on the fact that he really idolized that bloody thing. And he was kind of like saying stuff like, ooh, you're German and my ancestry is German. I'm like, shit, where's this going? And then he asked me about German history and I obviously knew quite a bit about it. And when I could talk to him about Frederick III and Barbarossa and all that sort of stuff, it sort of like, came to me that he was talking about all the pinpoints of um, the Third Reich pride, the type of stuff that Hitler would have really, really idealized himself. Wow. And next to me um, stood my partner, who was of you know Asian descent, but Canadian. And then he turned to her and said, you should know the stuff that your friend knows. You should learn that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which was probably the epiphany of Jeez. Just, just cheek and racism, quite frankly. <laughs> and um, I just, I didn't know what to say to that. And I feel bad to yeah. this day because I didn't say anything. I just, I probably just stood there with my mouth wide open. Well, and she didn't say anything either. Because also in that situation, you're at their mercy. You want to, you know, pass. You can't yeah, it's say terrifying. anything. And you like, don't you don't have, have no power. power. Yeah. At all. Yeah. You have all the power. Yeah. yeah. Scary stuff. Oh man! But, oh. Yeah, we've we've uh, ascended into darkness. There. I mean, <laughs> what's? <laughs> do you think there's a difference between the U.S. and the U.K. experience of queerness? I'm just wondering. Ooh, ooh, ooh good question. Uh, yeah, I'm sure there is. I mean, culturally, there's so many differences. I'm always very careful to say my experience is, is with West Coast and Californian culture because it, it's you know such a big place. Yeah. Um, well, I reckon uh, there's definitely a difference. I think the history of the British, like the LGBT history is different. The, you know, the pop culture, music, yeah, the way you socialize in the UK, the pub culture, the bar culture is all really different. My only experience of it in America is when I was in college. So it's probably a bit out of date. That's still <laughs> but, an experience. But, you know, yeah. yeah, I'm thinking about, but there's still, you're still having the same chat and the same, there's still that thing about trying to find the, the space to meet people. And, you know, finding the bar, right, or the party uh, that, that you know will be friendly and gay and all that. Uh, there's still the pride celebrations that you get in the summer. And, we, you know, and we live in a big city, so we get even more good stuff. Hmm. Wow. So. Well, I think your your experience is slightly different than probably most British women of our age. Because yeah. you lived in the U.S. for 10 years, and that was really your development from like a teenager and then in your early 20s so you're really influenced by the west coast kind of culture yeah Yeah, i was basically a teenager in america so i'm i'm a a bit lucky you yeah yeah, it was awesome uh but yeah i feel like yeah you're right there's a gap in my british uh 
Yeah. Well, how about we tackle it that way? Like you, yeah. you would know about Cornwall, what it means to be queer in Cornwall. So how about we ask you that question? And then Erica, what do you perceive to be different between California and here? Let's, let's see if it works that way. Yeah. So I think what I was thinking when Alex was talking, what I was thinking about was how we've lived here for the last 10 years, which has coincided yeah. with major gains mm. legally okay. for uh, LGBT people, um, but particularly around same-sex couples um, with um, civil partnerships and then marriage and kind of um, those type of rights. Um, it's no, by no means all sorted. But, um, but with that, it's been fascinating to watch how, as we travel around the UK or mm-hmm. Alex's family members in different, in different counties or different regions of the UK, how generally speaking across England, people generally are, I've watched kind of like a, a, a larger acceptance, I think, of like taking on board what the national legal rights are at least. And people have like, oh, if they don't know someone directly in their, you know, immediate sphere of family or friends, then there's that TV show or there's that presenter or, you know, there was that news story. So they have some idea. And even though Cornwall's really rural, I still feel like even in Cornwall, there's probably a gay in the village. (laughs) You know, like- There's always a gay in the village. There's always a gay in the village. (laughs) Where coming from rural towns in um, California and and I think a a lot across the West, you know, Mm -hmm. like there are just regional media or kind of access to media and just the the political environment means that even if, there will be gays in the village, in the town, in the, in the, in the small, in the small town, they're, they're probably not out or they're not out to everyone. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they're, and they're not out. And so even though on paper, the U S should be much more ahead, even than the UK, although they're, they're kind of even pegging at this point in terms of rights um, pockets of the U S are just so rural and um, isolated. isolated from yeah. those conversations. Yeah. I think here in the UK, there's more like national figures that people can point to and go, oh yeah, Graham Norton, he does that show on the radio or that chat show. Or, um, Claire Baldy. Claire Baldy. Super Baldy. Yeah, think of people, you know, Sunny Toxwig, Sue Perkins. Well, kind of the camp male gay figure is like a, as a chat show or like the smart yeah. nerdy, you know, like lesbian or gay woman on TV or in book feel much more prevalent here in the UK. And because there is a national broadcast that a lot of people watch, or listen to you in one form or another between the radio yeah. and the television. Yeah, I think that helps give some give you a something mm. to reference. You know. Yeah, um, I can see. Well, that. yeah. Well, it's weird because I I lived there when I was young, and then we moved away, and then I was coming back from college to Cornwall. So I was coming from being a super open gay person in California, my queer friends, and then I come back to Cornwall and you know, and uh, be in the pub on a Tuesday, hanging out with like the same people who've known me since I was a baby. And how do you convey this whole other life in America, you know, this American life that's in a near city and, you know, that kind of, I I really struggled with that. And yeah, there was one gay couple and one lesbian couple in the village that everyone knew. uh, And yes, I befriended them because, you know, they kind of helped, they helped me out when I was struggling over the... Mm holidays being back in Cornwall and not knowing who I could talk to about this stuff and um, I think what you're describing is is so palpable and so important because um 
we began talking about all of this stuff and you saying, well, it was almost like I was living a double life, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. I think we all have experience of that. And I think the issue that you're describing there is that we all have internal readiness for change. So we know that once we change location, we can apply that, right? So many, yeah. I myself moved to the UK knowing that I was going to be really out and gay. And then uh, I faced a struggle similar to you that when I went back to my hometown, um, I had changed my whole life around somewhere else and then I had to kind of convey to people that um, listen guys um, this this horizon is too small for me there's more to me now and um, it's it's so difficult to kind of do that to people who've known you all your life or yeah. think that they've known you all your life right mm -hmm. totally mm. and especially with this yeah the horizon's a good a good description like yeah your your vision and your view of the world has expanded so much you know and I know part of that's going to college but You know. Yeah, and part of that was also seeing Erica's butt. Well, yeah. <laughs> yep. Horizon changing incident, incidents, inciting incidents, right there. Anyway, <laughs> we still joke about it, you know. I'll be like, it's lovely. <laughs> I was wondering, um, Erica, I want to dip into that quickly because I, I would not do the podcast justice if I didn't explore that. Why? Did you become so interested in young adult fiction, particularly LGBTQ plus type adult fiction? Yeah, it's it's a it's a really good question, and I think it comes from a slight detour. Um, if I can provide a little bit of backstory, so I um, I did at my undergrad, I did feminist studies and then uh, literature, creative writing. So I was interested in poetry and kind of queer politics, basically, and left undergrad knowing I wanted to pursue postgrad work, but didn't want to take the creative writing route for various mm -hmm. reasons. And so kind of landed on picture books um, as, a, as an interesting field of study, because in terms of the language of them, this a really good picture book is essentially a poem set to pictures. Mm -hmm. And books for that readership, that young readership, are, are almost an, always political because there's always some um, aspect of teaching going on, whether it's just teaching reading or kind of teaching values. And, and that is part of the whole history of children's literature. I learned when I did my master's was like this, these, these started as very didactic books. And so I really enjoyed that. I really kind of enjoyed digging into the picture book form and the picture book form is specifically for and about and by LGBT families. And so I finished that study and I was like, okay, cool. This sounds good. And, um, this was 2011. I finished that and, I was working for a nonprofit, but knew that I wanted to likely go back to do a PhD and um, was really fired up about like the queer literature aspect, very much enjoyed the children's literature field, but knew I couldn't stretch my master's research into a doctorate. Um, and so I started looking around for what was going on. And in young adult literature, there was a little boom that was happening or a, uh, that was just starting to kind of bubble up. And so realized that there was a long history that went back to 1969 um, in terms of publishing books about LGBT characters for young adult readers. And there had been this kind of little blip around 2003, 2004, where these new novels had been published and they kind of made this big impact and it was exciting. From 2009 onward, um, um, around kind of the publication of Melinda Lowe's Ash, things started to shift a little bit more. And so I, as I started to kind of dig into this area of literature, I realized that things were really bubbling. 
up and starting to really change for readership. And so it was moving away from this quite stark realism story that was all about kind of coming out and everything and quite um, mixed endings, you know, into different genres and different stories and different settings. And this was happening globally, et cetera. So I became really interested in, in how this was shifting. And so part of it was an investment in um, books that were just inherently political and um, and were trying to reach an audience that very much wanted to see themselves represented in, in literature. And another part of it was um, I love kind of mapping and tracking change across different pieces and kind of looking at different aspects of history. And so to be a part of this um, small period and 2012 was another ended up being another little blip right when I started my PhD of all these new stories coming out um the miseducation of Cameron Post was a big book for me as was another book um Aristotle and Dante discover the secrets of the universe that was another really big one for in terms of my research and we might post links of those in the description of yeah, the podcast definitely. Yeah, they're both both beautiful books and they were both doing something quite elegant and sophisticated. Um, But with the kind of adult reader or the young adult reader in mind or the young adults, just like the teenager. And and both those books are written about characters who are coming of age in the late 80s, early 90s. And I think because I didn't come out in these rural spaces and I didn't have that experience, it was almost a way of tapping back into that to be like, oh yeah, I didn't have that experience coming out. And I didn't really have those, um, those experiences at a younger age, but these are stories that kind of speak to that and speak to those struggles that I haven't found Mm -hmm. um, in general literature um, that is not published for that audience. Mm. That's, that's really inspiring. And thank you so much for taking the time to explain that. Yeah. I think that's that's been a really rich sort of timeline. And um, we will definitely post links to those books as well. Um, all right. I, we're coming to the ending of the podcast. And I don't know um, if you're familiar with it, but we always traditionally ask one question, um, which I'm obviously not going to deny you either. Um, if there were no consequences, let's just start with that. What sort of lesbian affair, be it somebody from past, present, fiction, who would it be for you guys? Alex, where we start off with Wait, you? when you, I'm being really, when you say lesbian affair, do you mean like uh, a single person I would like to have an affair with? <laughs> if you would like to have an affair with several people, then you can do that too. I mean, we're not going to be, you know, discriminatory towards that. Oh, well, I mean... I can it, across history. That's a big ask. You're, Erica's ready. I don't. I'm, I'm not ready. ready. I don't no, I was, was hoping you would answer first. <laughs> I mean, I mean, my, my my first crush in terms of Hollywood will always be Kate Winslet, and then my second crush <laughs> was Brandi Carlile. So predictable. Brandi Carlile is technically the only woman Alex is allowed to leave me for. Right. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I've got my like get out of free card with Brandi Carlile. Um, yeah, mm, but history wise, it's a good one. Maybe someone like Boudicca or something. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Like Interesting that. choice. I like that. Uh, can I have a fictional character? Oh, yeah, of course. Good idea. Okay. <laughs> Alex is kind of like really on a roll. <laughs> I have a feeling I know who oh, it is. Um, could it could it be Carol? Oh, no, no, Carol. Oh no, I would she's not want to be in that. Super... Carol, that's a relationship that I would not want to be a part of. Uh, it's too much trauma. I mean, Highsmith was 
she was writing her characters in a kind of a thriller-esque romance style and too high drama for me. Yeah. <laughs> too high maintenance. Yeah, yeah, I like a surety. Um, <laughs> I think I would take Orlando as a lover for sure. Yeah, like just all that history and like to have someone just like, <laughs> like and like they've had three hundred years to like figure shit out in bed. Like I just feel like Orlando would be such an amazing lover, <laughs> and they've <laughs> they, they just would. Uh, they're so full of adoration and contemplation and focus on everyone that they take as a lover. So I think I would definitely, I would definitely take Orlando. Orlando is my lover. Would there be anyone that we would take together? I mean, Orlando sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> no, see, I feel like Orlando should be my affair. But I was thinking we could take Kelly Torres. Kelly Torres, a, yeah. We're going to do fictional character. Grey's yeah. Anatomy, Kelly Torres. She's the orthopedic surgeon played by... Sarah Ramirez. Who is my actress crush, for sure. (laughs) She's got the hot, she's got the brains, both on and off screen. Fantastic. (laughs) We're going to be talking about this for like the rest of the day. (laughs) Oh, I'm totally happy. I mean, in the idea of Boudicca, I I mean, who knows? We only know bits about her in terms of her achievements and her approach to her, you know, things, but yeah, I can make up all the other stuff and just pretend, right? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Wow. That, that's been probably the richest conversation we've had about a lesbian affair yet. I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it keeps yeah. giving that, that question. It's so interesting. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think also when you were talking about Orlando, I was thinking of Tilda Swindon in the film version. And I think, isn't there a bit where she drives away with a motorcycle? I can't remember that that bit stuck in my mind for some reason Mm. Mm. anyway I shall contemplate about that later (laughs) I think yeah (laughs) tell this one does an amazing job with Orlando I do like I don't I don't want to subscribe to types to body types but Tilda's has never like um uh has never been kind of someone I've been like oh hello I mean she's amazing but physically um and so that would be the only flaw in that idea but so to summarize um (laughs) flaw in the idea is that you don't fancy basically um that's fine that's a subjective thing that we cannot change anyway And yeah. I mean, and you, and that can be your bit. <laughs> isn't all like- oh, actually, but because it's a love letter from Virginia Woolf to Vita Sackville-West, and actually uh, Virginia Woolf had this whole thing about Vita's legs, yeah. these like shapely legs. Mm-hmm. So I have no idea what, what Vita actually looked like in real life. But um, I mean, I I should, but um, but yeah, so I, shapely legs are definitely, if Alex, if Alex <laughs> got me, if Alex liked my butt, Aww. I liked her shapely legs. So maybe. <laughs> I, I love Thank you. <laughs> Guys, it's, 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 it's amazing how um, time passes and stuff like that. And, and we've talked about so many different things. I, I want to thank you sincerely from the bottom of my heart for taking the time to do this podcast. It's been so much fun. And um, yeah, we need to do this again yeah, at some this point. Yeah, great. <laughs> thank you.